What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Control Yourself Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com is, uh, is, is our website uh, where you can go to find out any seminar information upcoming for functional range conditioning certifications or functional range release, uh, kin stretch, functional range assessment, pretty much uh, anything you need to know about the functional range systems and the work that I have done for my entire life, as well as many other people, including one of the people in the podcast, or the person in the podcast today, go to functionalanatomyseminars.com. We have uh, online seminars now, uh, obviously, because people are kind of stuck at home. Uh, so you can do the seminars, get your certifications from the comfort of your own home. Um, we have them running at different uh, times, North American times versus European versus uh, Australasian times. Um, there's FRC ones coming up, FRA ones coming up. Go to functionalanatomyseminars.com to learn more. We are also brought to you, as always, by our sponsor, Westside Barbell. Visit westside-barbell.com. Uh, when you're there, if you use the promo code DRE10, that's D-R-E-10 on checkout, you will receive 10% off of your purchase of educational material uh, or clothing. If you have not been to Westside Barbell, I highly suggest you go visit and, and learn more. Uh, Westside Barbell is, is, has been around as, a, as an authority in strength and conditioning for countless numbers of, number of years. If you are new to the strength and conditioning world, uh, I'm sure you will run into the teachings of Louis Simmons soon enough. And if you do not, uh, you should actively pursue that. And you can do that by going to westside-barbell.com. Use the code DRE10 at checkout. Uh, today's podcast, I sit down with my very good friend, Dr. Michael Chivers, who, uh, if you don't know, is a sports special, specialist chiropractor, but he's also... Uh, the lead instructor for uh, the functional range systems. Um, he has worked with a, a number of professional sports organizations, certifying them in, in, in functional range release, uh, functional range conditioning, functional range assessment. He's worked with countless uh, professional athletes. He's highly sought after. Uh, he lectures around the world on a variety of topics, but specific to this, le- this particular podcast, Range of motion. Range of motion has been a topic of debate recently um, amongst, let's call them internet scientists. Um, We have put together in this two-hour talk a compendium of range of motion. What is range of motion? What it's not? uh, Why is it important to understand the distinction and the complexities of it? Um, If you're an athlete, if you're a, a manual therapist, if you're a client, a patient, anyone who moves uh, in the world, any Homo sapien, I would argue, uh, would be should be very interested in 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 the discussion uh, that we have on range of motion and how that ultimately um, will influence your ongoing health and and human performance. Uh, anyway, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with my good friend, Dr. Michael Chivers. And we're live. Uh, how's it going, buddy? It's going well, man. And you? Uh, I'm doing well on this fine morning. Do you have coffee yet? I, I'm drinking coffee as we speak. All right, so we're going to get smarter as this goes. 
So this is what I thought we'd do. Uh, I've always wanted to be in the same room as you when, when someone on the internet uh, misinterprets something that you say. And, and, and I, I've always wanted to see like the, the red just rising and, and then you just explode and then explain everything you wanted to say, but then you don't press send. You just fucking try to press send, but you don't press send. So I want, yeah. I want to try to be in the room for a few of those things. So I, yeah. you know, I went and I, and I pulled some famous Dr. Michael Chivers quotes off the internet. Which I didn't um, know I had. It's incredible. Dr. Michael, Dr. Michael Chivers quotes the whole list of them. That you, Richard Feynman, and Einstein. <laughs> okay, so I figured I'd just read some of these, and then obviously, you know what's interesting about when I when we talk to each other is that because we always lecture the same things, I always say that I'd rather attend yours uh, instead of coming to mine because I get to hear all of the stuff that we've been talking about over these years. I get to hear it in a completely different way, if that makes sense. So I think I'm. I'm going to turn this off one second. And then it's the same for me, right? Like sometimes you, sometimes you get caught up in your own, your own head. So it's, it's good to hear things from a different perspective, even though we're talking about the same thing. You know, I was thinking about this before you get in. I was thinking about this before we actually got on here. So, you know, people, I, I hope people are starting to see that, you know, FRS is not a, a, a one size fits all type thing. Uh, you know, it's, we're, we're talking about a, a, a scientific thought process that we put a, an astronomical amount of time in to try to, try to rationalize, you know, and it, it's so interesting that you and I read the same things, you know, our interests are the same for the most part. We have different, you know, interests outside of academia per se, you know, like you like to beat people up and I like to play sports and stuff like that. Um, but when we read, we read the same stuff. So we read a lot of physics stuff. We read a lot of biology stuff. We read a lot of, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and we can read the same stuff and we can, we can not come to different conclusions per se, but the way you interpret it and the lens that you filter things through, just again, because of your experiences you know, uh, uh, in school and, and your experiences in, you know, movement and, and what you've done, you interpret them differently than I interpret them, but we can have, so therefore we can have a very fruitful discussion about, you know, the same topic, but, you know, I often learn something about that topic that maybe I didn't interpret from reading that thing. And, and I would suppose that probably you, you know, would learn something just by the way I interpret that topic, you know, and I think, I think a lot about like the summits that we've had mm. in terms of, you know, some of that material. And a lot of those summits were just like, Hey, we should, we should do this or, or here's a, here's a topic for, for a summit. Here's what we haven't touched on, or here's where we need to take certain things, you know, and we, we go and, you know, you do your thing and I do my thing. And then we periodically meet about these things. And, and it's, it's often very crazy that we're on the same page. You know, we may be on different lines of the page, mm -hmm. but we're on the same page. And therefore, you know, when we have these summits or when you and I get together or when, you know, other people that are involved in FRS, we all think very similarly, but it's interesting that we can, we can all teach each other something about a topic that maybe we haven't, thought of or we didn't interpret it that way or 
we didn't see it exactly that way. Um, so these discussions that we have are, are often really, really uh, interesting. And so when you say it's, it's, it would be interesting to sit on one of your lectures, you know, I, I feel the same about anybody. I feel the same about you. I feel the same about Dewey, mm. you know, because, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's awesome just to see the way that different people interpret things. Uh, and then, you know, you can run that through your filter and go, oh, okay, I understand why they said that the way they said that, or I understand why they explained that the way they explained that, or I understand why they use that particular analogy. You know what I'm saying? Mm, absolutely. Which is, which goes to how we speak about, about research and about what you're supposed to be. It's like when two people are trying to figure something out or not two people in our case, we have a whole group of people, but when you're trying to figure something out um, and you interpret it and, and you run it through like a systematic approach, it's good. We've been doing it for so long and we've looked at, you know, what we do from so many angles that like you said, when you and I read a, a book on, uh, on particle physics or if we read a book on, you know what I mean? We'll, we'll draw in formation, we'll draw information from those topics and we'll pull them into trying to understand the topic that we specialize in, right? So like you said, you pull yeah. from different lenses. So at the summit, we pulled from like a, a physics lens. We looked at the, the basic laws of physics and we said, if we look at the basic, law, basic laws of physics and we run that you know, through, or we run our ideas as how we manage people through these laws, do they still make sense? And we did this yeah. with evolutionary biology and we did the same, which, yeah. is, which is also interesting because you, you'll attest to this. When we're asked, what do you read? Um, it really sums up kind of the problem with how people look at literature. When we do our lectures, when we do our, I, I stop and say, what you're about to get is an interpretation of the literature. So yeah. I've consumed it. I've interpreted it. I've had conversations with other people who consume and interpret the literature and now we have to start to piece these things together right of and course what, what yep. frustrates me on the internet for example is when if somebody takes a sentence you say and then they they, they run with it out of context out, not wanting to know what the paragraph was that was attached to that sentence they just want to take this sentence and say hey look at that hey look at this paper and that brings us back to the other thing it's like we always say if when you're consuming the scientific literature, you're consuming it as a person who has previous notions and thoughts and you're bringing something different to the table. So it's okay if the interpretation is different, as long as you give it enough attention and you're not just going by the, the introduction. I talked to Menta the other day uh, 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 on the podcast and, and he was talking about how so many people now, they read the introduction, but the introduction is really there to sell the paper right? Sure. It's, yeah. it's a teaser. And what you're supposed to do is dive into it and then, you know, make decisions as to how does this information apply to you? Like, what does it mean to you? Which Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think, you know what, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, when we were in Cairo school, remember when, in, in, when we were in Cairo school, uh, you know, in fourth year, you had to get all these papers to back up exactly what you, what you did. Yeah. You know, not not that I that I half ask things because I, I never do, obviously. But, you know, a lot of times if you're pressed for time, you know, thinking back. Remember in fourth year when you thought you were you had so much stuff to do and you really didn't have that much stuff to do. Nothing. Nothing to now, do. now, now life is far more difficult. Anyway, you know, often people would be like, oh, or, you know, you may you might sort of skip out on a paper. and You might read the intro and the discussion. Mm. 
and you're like, oh, I, I know what's I know what's going on now. And then one of the things that I actually learned when we did our residency was, yeah, that's not really it. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not really it. You know, you you have to uh, you kind of have to to ruminate with that paper a little bit and look at. You know, I don't. I'm not one to say that I you know look at the stats and you know I, I'm really calculating my own. You, you know, can't explain. A, you can't explain a paired t-test to me right now. No, definitely not. I mean, I took that stuff enough that I probably should, but, mm. but I, I, I mean, I don't do that, but I, I think you, you do have to interpret that to the best of your ability uh, to try to try to tease out what the paper is trying to tell you. You know, it's getting back to what you were saying before. I know both of us are, have read uh, quite a bit of, of E.O. Wilson. And uh, one of his things that sticks out with me quite a bit, I, I can picture the page because I know exactly in the book where it is. I couldn't tell you exactly word for word what it is, but his book on consilience mm. is probably necessary reading for everybody. Because in that book, you know, you have a, you have a hardcore biologist, you know, a hardcore systems thinker uh, in, in the study of entomology, which I don't really care too much about. but. You know, well, you have I mean, a hardcore. The way he explains it, you kind of do, though. You, you kind of do, yeah. yeah. But you have a hardcore biologist saying, "You know what? I don't, I don't learn from biology, mm -hmm. <laughs> per se. Mm -hmm. I learn when I take other things and I advance, you know, my understanding of my own topic when I take in other things and I run them through my lens and I can, you know, discard what doesn't apply." Uh, and I can set it aside for now and I can take what I can apply and maybe it helps me understand something in my own realm a little bit differently. And those things that don't apply right now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to apply ever. That just means that you just don't have enough information right now to fit them into your, into your model of how you look at things. You know what I'm saying? Like I, th that's, that's the thing that I think bothers me a lot about people who are trying to be evidence-based is they, they take the evidence and then, you know, for whatever reason, everything that came before it doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, did you read this new paper on, you know, ACL reconstruction or did you read this paper on the biomechanics of this? And, you know, in the realm of science, that's a, that's just a very, very small blip in, you know, the accumulation of the process of knowledge and gaining knowledge. And so, you know, you've, you've, mentioned this a lot and, and and i know you know we have talked about this a lot this is where you get into like article chasers and people who are just trying to be evidence-based by saying that they you know they go on pubmed and they read what's new every month but they often don't they often don't have a uh a, a model to stand on because they're so swayed so often about different findings that you know they often get lost in terms of what is what does this mean how do i apply this um you know we call this sort of that paralysis by analysis i don't know if that exactly fits but you know i i think if people just took science for what it is it's really nothing more than just the and and just took what you get from that and everybody has a model of how they look at things. Everybody has a lens of how they look at things. I mean, that's often what we teach people is we teach people that, you know, there's these lenses that we think are important that you should run your information through. And, you know, if, if, it, 
if it works great if it doesn't you know don't necessarily discard it just just dig a little bit deeper and maybe look at trying to reconcile more things about that topic you know if you often don't understand something it's not like you're and i try to teach this to my kids as well if you don't understand something don't just keep beating your head up against the wall like look at other places you have resources everywhere to try to figure try to figure something out you know you can you can identify these people i was just thinking by the the amount of you know i'm all for saying something i don't think this works i don't think that works as long as you have an explanation but when your entire output to the world right when your contribution to the ether is simply don't do this don't do this that doesn't work that's not a thing and if you, you can you can actually read it in the tweets the tweets if you're not if i'm not seeing okay what do you do someone yeah, totally. in that I, I i almost dismiss that person because it's extraordinarily easy to to take a concept run to the research and find a single paper to mm -hmm. contradict what you said that's that's i mean that's i can do that on almost any topic right so yep. when, when someone uses research with always a negative lens, not of, as a lens to try to discover, but as a lens to try to defeat, well, then it's, I mean, I don't, I don't, you're not going to be helpful to me, right? Because I, I read that paper too, right? It's like, people, you know what I think? People actually think that they're the only ones sometimes that read or that have access to papers, right? Mm -hmm. Well, oh, you didn't read this paper. We get this a lot. You put up, you say something. It's like, well, you didn't read this paper. Well, yeah, no, we did. We read it. We processed it, and then we yeah. put it on the piles, right? We didn't just say go with the last paper. We put it on right. the piles to make our arguments, and then, you know, over the past six hundred years of the scientific revolution, some arguments get better and better, and some of them lag behind. But it's building a stack of papers, right? Yeah, of course. It's of not, course. And, then, and then it's pulling other disciplines into these papers and making a real fucking mess of it is what it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, again, I, I agree with, I agree with all of that. And, and, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have to get into the philosophy of science. Cause I don't, I don't, uh, I don't pretend to be a philosopher, but you know, I know we both are familiar with, with, uh, a little bit of Karl Popper stuff. And that's not what, I mean, that's not what he says. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, what he says is that, you know, you, you have to, you have to come up with models. You have to come up with hypotheses and you have to gather information to try to falsify your hypothesis. Uh, but even in the, the process of falsifying your hypothesis, that, that doesn't mean that you just discard everything. I mean, it, 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 we can't just keep saying, particularly this happens in our world, you know, more so in manual therapy, I think, than, than in strength and conditioning, uh, just because I know more about the manual therapy world. You know, we, we have people who are saying, you know, like, oh, everything you learn in chiro school, everything you learn in physio school, don't do it because it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not exactly right. <laughs> well, let's get into that because that's, that's, that's a big topic. Like, yeah, there's like, there's, there's hundreds of years of information and it's all killed by one you know, by one blog that looks at the resiliency of fascia or something like that. Like it just, yeah, everything, falls, everything falls to nothing based on that. So you've talked about this a lot is that the, the status of research, let's say on soft tissue therapy yeah. or the status of 
not necessarily the status of, there's a lot of information out there on soft tissue therapy throughout the years, but with regards to specifically understanding the mechanism, I believe that anybody in our profession would agree that uh, mechanotransduction has to be understood, right? That's kind of where we are in the understanding of what we're doing. So the question is, is that where are we with regards to the research on mechanotransduction? And is there enough of it to negate? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I always think back to Einstein and if he gave out one of those thought experiments, like the one on the train when he's observing the person as they yep. work, but imagine he's, he, you know, he, he goes next door to his colleague's office and he goes, hey, look at this. And, and he explains the thought experiment and then that guy goes on to PubMed or whatever the hell they had back there, back then, which is nothing close to PubMed. And, you know, he, he writes in the thought experiment, presses enter, and he doesn't see a paper on it. Yeah. And he's like, sorry, Albert, all that shit's, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not evidence-based. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah. and then that would have been it. You know what I mean? So speak to that with regards to the concept of mechanotransduction, which for people who are not manual therapists, we're, we're speaking about how your how your tissues respond when you're being let's say you're getting a massage or you're getting any kind of soft tissue work mechanotransduction is is discussing the propagation of force through the tissue and the effects of the transduction of that force on the tissue so what do we yeah. know <laughs> sum it up well i'll start by saying this is that <clears throat> We know, I, I, this is going to sound very oxymoronic. Oxymoronic. Uh, we know, yeah, we know a lot. We know a lot about mechanotransduction. We know a lot about the process of it. We know a lot about what, what we think is happening. We know a lot about the players involved about mechanotransduction. But in, the, but in all of that, we know very little in terms of... of how that, you know, applies to a, uh, a bigger concept and how that, you know, potentially applies to uh, what we do. And, and the reason is, is just because, uh, and, and again, this is, you know, I hate to keep saying we've talked about this, we've talked about this, but this is something that we've, we've talked about as well. Like, you know, in manual therapy, we, we, don't have, we don't have a large pool of evidence to pull from. I mean, manual therapy evidence has been around for, you know, what, 40 years, maybe 50 years. Um, and, you know, in looking at all of that soft tissue in and of itself hasn't, hasn't really been looked at with any sort of scientific rigor. And part of that is just because we haven't defined, I don't think what soft tissue is, you know, most, most people think soft tissue is, you know, something that involves the soft tissue. So that could range anywhere. And the, the literature tells us this, that could be anything from stretching after activity or stretching after treatment to, uh, you know, foam rolling to uh, tennis ball work to, you know, massage ball work all the way into soft tissue massage, which again is, is not something that we've actually, you know, rigorously defined. So part of the issue that we have in soft tissue therapy is we haven't defined what what that is. And so that is the first thing that I think we have defined for people. We have defined soft tissue as being the process of how we 
you know, start the loading process of tissue, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we've, we've rationalized that with, with a scientific base saying that, you know, force is, is a necessary requirement for tissues to adapt. We know this. That's, that's just sort of um, some, some basic science on, on what tissue is and why we're human. Uh, so force is necessary. We've also found that the direction of that force is a necessary requirement. Therefore, we can apply that into soft tissue. And we've found that that has to be uh, done for a certain period of time, uh, which we've also defined. So I think part of what we've done is we've given people at least a, a definition of what we think soft tissue is and what it looks like. And then, you know, if you can, if you can go with that definition, which is far different than what most people's conceptualizations of what soft tissue are, then at least we have something to work with. You know what I'm saying? So at least we can then say, okay, well now let's look at what the research tells us about those re necessary requirements of soft tissue. And then we can start to say, well, that might eliminate certain things that we thought were soft tissue mm -hmm. uh, interventions. Mm -hmm. And then we can say, okay, well now let's look at what what we think is a soft tissue intervention and unfortunately this is where you know the literature itself breaks down because we don't we don't have that and and if we do have that you know i i believe that the the definition with respect to that literature doesn't jive with what what has not been something that we've made up it's been something that that the literature actually tells us is a is a necessary requirement and so this is where you kind of got into this whole, well, soft tissue doesn't do anything. Soft tissue is a, is a neurological response and it, and it, you know, this is how we have to look at it and so on and, and so forth. And, and I agree with all of that because you, you can't discount any of that. You know, there's, you know, we've talked about this. You have, have talked about this. I've talked about this. There's, there's something neurological about touch that we have to, that we also have to scientifically rationalize. And there's something neurological about the fact that, you know, because most of how we function is entirely based on sensory perception, that there's going to be some nervous system involvement of soft tissue. But for most people, that's where they stop. And for, for us, that wasn't good enough because we know that there are changes that happen as a result of potentially abiding by these soft tissue rules that we can now put into the soft tissue definition. And that's what gets us into mechanotransduction. And so mechanotransduction has been around for 20 years or more. You know, if you look at Ingber's original papers on it, you know, early nineties. Um, Ingber for those listening. Yeah. Don Ingber is sort of the, the godfather of, of, mechanotransduction I, you know what I, I don't even remember if he was calling it mechanotransduction back then but he was he was basically telling us that that what we are made up of from a from a cellular perspective responds to the things that we used to define soft tissue inputs mm -hmm. and so now we can start to put that together and go oh geez well maybe maybe there's something is to this and I remember you know gosh like what, 15 years ago when we, when we were reading Ingber stuff and we we're going, man, this, this is this, this is the stuff that we never got when we were in Cairo school. This is the stuff that we never got 
you know, when, when we started practice and we're doing these things and weren't really understanding what, what we were doing and why we were making the changes that we were making um, or, or potentially making. And so, uh, you know, if you follow that, that line for the last, you know, 20 years, Ingbert basically started a scientific revolution in, in cellular or molecular and molecular biology, because you can't, you can't, go into PubMed right now and look at cellular biology or molecular biology and can't and not see the word mechanotransduction and not see the concept of cells responding to force. And so uh, again, I, we don't have to get into a huge amount of detail, but you know, we've started to, and when I say we, I mean not us, but like science has started to really parse out the details on you know, what parts of the cell are responsive to force and how do they do this? And, and, you know, how long does it last? And how big is that force propagated? And for what distance? I mean, we have, and what time frame? We have these things now. And so we can start to gather information now about really important things about soft tissue and how long we should do it. And when can we expect some change? And, you know, are we making change? And, and unfortunately, for a lot of people in the manual world they, world, they just refuse to acknowledge any of this stuff, that it even exists, because for some reason, a living human being cannot be adaptable from a tissue perspective. Yet they can believe that exercise or, or they can believe in the overload principle, and they can believe in adaptation from that perspective, but they can't see it from a from a soft tissue perspective and we've we've always said that you know that's kind of the start of of how you introduce the concept of load mechanotransduction exists everywhere from from soft tissue into uh you know strength and conditioning uh it's just it's it's interesting that we can see it for one but we we can't see it from a for another and and this is why we we say that force is the main input this is where all that came from. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole dearth of, of literature that, that people just refuse to acknowledge because they just want to say, they just want it to be easy. And it's not easy to try to, to, try to rationalize these things. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know, if you, if you look at science, you know, we, we mentioned Karl Popper, but if you, if you kind of look at how science has progressed philosophically from Popper, um, I believe his name is Thomas Kuhn. Anyway, he wrote a book on the something about scientific revolutions. And he talked about the difference between quote unquote normal science and revolutionary science. And normal science, he just called scientists that are that are that are puzzle solvers. You know what I'm saying? Like they just they just do experiments to say that they did experiments and they they follow the scientific method and they just reproduce the same stuff all the time. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Which is a lot of what science is. In, and I'm not saying that that's bad per se, but that's a lot of what science is. And then he talks about revolutionary science where you know, someone had the courage to say, man, I'm seeing something different here, or I'm looking at things differently, uh, and, and really trying to understand why they might be different than just putting a puzzle together again, because that's not really what, what science is. And, and to, to progress science, you need these, 
these periods of revolutionary science where someone has the the balls to say, shit, I'm looking at this differently. And my, my way of looking at it is producing results. And I just, that's, that's where we are in biology. It's, you know, we just, from a manual perspective and, and from a, a chiropractic and a PT perspective, I guess, massage perspective, we just, we just haven't jumped into that revolution yet. All right. So I was thinking while you were, while you were explaining that is that, I think maybe people are talking past each other because of the lack of definition on the topic. And you were speaking to this earlier with regards to research. And I've said this before too, with regards to like low back research. If you take, you know, a hundred people and you have a, a particular input for low back pain that you're going to apply to check the relevance of that input or whatever, what type of treatment, you can't just divide the people in half and say, half of you go to that non-treatment group and half of you go to this treatment group, try it and see what happens. Because you're kind of telling me that everyone experiences low back pain in the exact same way, right? So yeah, you're, not, you're not defining the groups, right? If somebody had low back pain because their SI joint was in pain, that's one thing. If somebody was stabbed in the fucking spine with a pencil, that's a different thing. And they can't be allotted to the, to the same group, which is, I, I think, well, for my from what I see in the literature, that's a lot of what's happened is that the groups haven't been defined. And you were speaking to that earlier too. If you look at a ACL reconstruction, you know, rehabilitation paper, it's pretty much someone goes to the rehab group and then other people go to the non-rehab group. Once again, saying that rehab is somehow a generic thing. Like I'm applying rehab yeah. to someone, right? I'm sprinkling rehab on someone's shoulder. Yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> and then it's like the magic at, fairy dust. Yeah, you look at the results and then you go, oh, it's, it's okay. Like when you look at spinal manipulative therapy, if you look at it from a whole, you read a bunch of papers and what do you conclude? You conclude, yeah, it's, it's, a good, um, it's a good form of treatment to add to people with back pain. But it's not like you see amazing results. Like you ask a therapist, you know, what do you think about the therapy you use? You go, oh my God, it works so well. Then you go into the literature and it's like, yeah, yeah, 55% of the time it works. And, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think it's because you're not defining the target. And we'll say, we, I've said, we've said this before. If you think your treatments do anything, then you have to agree that the more specific the target you're applying the treatment to, the better it should work. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and, and there we go with soft tissue. So now think about this in forms of soft tissue. I don't think we... When you say soft tissue, when I say soft tissue, when people hear what we say, their interpretation of what soft tissue is is not the same. And that's where we get confused with the neurology and the biology. What we're saying with soft tissue is there's only really one way for us to speak to the body long term, right? And that's with forces. So mm -hmm. you put forces into the body and then the body responds to the forces. How does it respond? It responds neurologically but it responds biologically. And if you look at the of research in general, what you should, I think, conclude, and what I know you conclude is, you can't have permanent neurologic change unless you have subsequent biologic change. And mm -hmm. you can't have permanent biologic change unless you have subsequent neurologic change. Agreed. Okay? But if you think of soft tissue as, I'm going to make your boo-boo feel better, and that's the point of difference. When, when I go to you to get soft tissue work, or you come to me to get soft tissue work, we're not trying to 
I, I'm not trying to find where it hurts and then rub the hurt away. So pain isn't necessarily the outcome measure. What we're trying to do is we're trying to apply forces in a way that we understand the body reacts to forces. And we're saying that you have to impart the forces over a period of time because there's no such thing as a paper in the scientific literature that demonstrates that you can put one biological input into the system and change it permanently. It, it doesn't happen. So I can talk about, for example, things that seemingly only affect the skin, okay? So there's treatments to affect, you have pain here, you can do things to the skin, you can put tape on the skin, you can rub the skin, you can dermally abrade the skin, you can you know, take instruments and, and whatever to the skin. We're not saying you're not gonna find results. We're not saying that if, some, if, if you bang your elbow and you go, ah, that's not gonna feel better. Of course it's gonna feel better. That's just not our goal. Right. Our goal is the long-term management of the person's meat, of their system, right? Of how the neurology speaks to the biology, how the biology subsequently feeds back information to the neurology. Because yes. that's what really matters long-term. Sure, there, there are some, you know, someone comes to us, they're in pain. We do things to quell their pain. I get it. But the idea that what we're doing is a long-term reducer of pain I just don't know how you can look at literature or practice and come to that conclusion, right? I don't remember, I've been practicing for a while and so have you. And one thing I would not call practice is easy. I would not say that it's easy to no. reduce symptoms. No, but, if you, but if you go by the rubby rubby idea, like another example I had, there's a paper, I don't want to mention it, but there's a paper that says, if someone has pain here, hi Daniela. Hi there. Say hi to the thousands of people on the company. <laughs> if you have pain here, right, in the patellar tendon, apparently there's a spot somewhere more proximally in your vastus lateralis or something where if you rub it, you'll, you'll fix the pain here, right? It, now, now think about this logically. Let's say that the pain here is caused by patellar tendinopathy, which we know to be a long-term degenerative change of the histology of the tissue in that the cells become disorganized. They lay down, they lay down cross bridging and they, you know what I mean? Like there's neovascularization, there's, there's pain sensitivity, there's degeneration, the rope is starting to peel, you know, a tendinopathy is occurring. Okay. For fuck's sakes, that didn't happen yesterday, right? Like a broken down tendon is happening over a period of time. So the idea, that you can rub something here and make this better is to say that somehow you have found a magical spot in the body where when you rub these cells, these cells decide to completely reorganize themselves and go back to where they were before. Oh shit, wait, cells don't have brains. So they don't know what they were before. So how can, how can it even be? You see yeah. what I'm saying? Like, how 100%. How can that be a thing? So again, I think that if we define it as force input, that's it, we're, we're not even speaking about the same topic. Yes. You know, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And that's why I, that's why I, 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 I wanted to start the answer to that question. I don't even know if I answered your question, but I, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, that we talk a lot about in, in the system you know, specifically in FR with, with respect to soft tissue stuff, 
is, is that we have to define it. We have to define that there are certain, there are certain things that, that are necessary to occur for it to be considered a soft tissue input. And, and you know, that's what we spend all our time you know, discussing and learning about and how to, how to practically apply. And, and getting to what you were saying, you know, we've argued this a lot, uh, but, you know, I, I almost can't, I fault people, but I almost can't fault people because, you know, if you look at the research, you know, the outcome measures that are often used are easy ones. Did I change the VAS on this patient? You know, did my, did my, you know, four weeks of rehab or my four weeks of soft tissue therapy or my four weeks of laser or my 12 sessions, did they change the VAS? So we often use pain as an outcome uh, or pain is often used as an outcome in research. So therefore it just translates into practice. Oh, well, if somebody has pain, you know, I'll just throw these things at it and hope, hopefully change. And then the other thing that, that we, we often use in, uh, is in research is somehow did this lead to uh, um, a change in range of motion or strength somehow okay. yeah which which we know is is one of those things that takes a lot longer than you know twelve sessions of 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 laser or or you know four weeks of one hour a day foam rolling to actually to actually change so I think coming back to all of this. Uh, I think we just, we just don't know again, just because it's poorly defined, the whole thing is poorly defined from the get go that we just haven't applied the appropriate outcome measures. Therefore we haven't applied the appropriate scientific methodologies to actually really understand why things are, are happening the way they are. And, and so that's why we get a lot of people saying, well, that, you know, there's no evidence for this or the evidence sucks or don't do any of this and, and so on and so forth. I mean, if that was truly the case, then, you know, in our 15, 16 years of practice, you know, the, the, the thousands upon thousands of people that we helped wouldn't have been helped. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, unless we study soft tissue with the precision that surgeons study their craft, mm. we're never going to know the, 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 the true benefits, right? And, as, and, and you know what, and maybe that, maybe, well, I know right now, because we, right now that is, that's, that's too hard for us. We're not there yet. We don't, we don't have the instrumentation and therefore the methodologies to do that yet. So, but again, that doesn't mean that we say, well, it's not doing anything. Well, it's, this but, means that but okay, so <clears throat> there's, there's no evidence in the way that people define evidence. There's plenty of evidence to guide what you should be doing. And that's kind of, that is the systems that, that, that we put out to the world is that there's enough evidence to guide and there's enough, you know, there's no evidence in that the, the soft tissue evidence, if you look up soft tissue papers, that, that doesn't help you. But if you go into the, the biophysics, the cellular biophysics as to how cells respond to force, how cells propagate force, how tissue responds to force, and then you start to sprinkle in the effects of soft tissue, you can, you can make an incredibly strong argument that even if the soft tissue is there to allow the person to move more, right? 
Yes. Then, then it's good enough just at that. Like it's good enough to, we, no one's going to tell me that moving tissue is, and, and the application of, of internal loads by, you know, force, by, by lifting, by pushing, by training, no one's going to say that that doesn't change tissue. That would be a crazy thing to say, right? So if what we're doing can enhance that, which is really what the system is, it's enhancing the training, which is really what long-term fixes. Yes. The treatment is, yep. is what sets up the environment yep. that the subsequent training inputs, which are, which are multiple and repeated, can begin to adapt over time. Right. So, yes. but I, I want to pull something out because I want to get to that topic too, because we talked about outcome measures and you pulled one out, which I think confuses people to no end and in its range of motion. Okay. So I'm going to throw <laughs> these questions at you and I want you to just give me the, so number one, if you take a bird's eye view of the literature with regards to range of motion, is it an effective outcome measure when it comes to pain or injury prevention? Yes. Go. So again, so I'll, I'll take you on a little journey of, of how we got to trying to think of range of motion and I'll kind of take you on where, where I think we are right now. Uh, Cause I know you and I have talked about this as well. So <clears throat> Again, I'll, I'll take it back to school days. Yes. Remember in school days. Take back to school, Mikey. Take, when we were in Cairo school, you know, range of motion was all just like. Was, all this was black, by the way, back then. I'm just yeah. noticing that. I couldn't even grow this back then. <laughs> uh, hold on, hold on. You know, hold on, you range paused. of motion was one of those things that you did. Oh, am Go I good ahead. now? Yeah, you're good now. So, Range of motion was just one of those things that you did as part of your orthopedic examination, right? And so I remember in, in Cairo school, you know, there's, you know, remember we had to memorize, or at least I did, because I'm like that. I memorized every single range of motion of every single joint in the body so that I could understand how to do it on an orthopedic exam. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were taught active range of motion. We were taught passive range of motion. But I really didn't understand range of motion. And, and that's not how you understand range of motion. It's not a, it's not a, a thing that, you know, is, comes included with your shoulder. It's not a thing that, you know, comes included with, you know, all these other joints. And so I think over the years, what we've, what we've done is we've tried to tease out what range of motion actually is. And so at range of motion actually is, you know, two different things so again it back getting back to the school days in Cairo school you know we always did active range of motion first and then you push that thing a little bit more and that somehow delineated your passive range of motion mm -hmm. and we know that that you could push push somebody passively more than they could move actively and so when you really start to tease that out that means that range of motion are, is inherently two different qualities so it's, it's made up of two different things. So it's made up of some passive qualities and it's made up of some active qualities. And I think that's the first thing that we should probably try to tease out with respect to range of motion is that there are some passive properties that will influence range of motion that, that are necessary within uh, <laughs> tissues. And there are some active qualities that are necessary to have 
uh, working to, to achieve active range of motion. So we've teased all that out. That really just means that your passive range of motion, uh, you'll have some neurological things. So you'll have some muscle neurological stuff, which is really just sarcomere overlap. And you'll have some bioflow stuff, which in our system is just the continuity of, of connective tissue or white stuff that's involved. And so, you know, as you move something from short to long, those two things uh, are in play when we, when we move in passive range of motion, which is really just taking something from a, a shortened position to a lengthened uh, position. And so really what that is, is that means that something that's moved from short to long, we know that it will increase in tension. And so the tension comes from these active components and these passive components. And that's really just you know, a, a basic understanding of what we call length tension or the length tension relationship. So if you really tease that out, that means that passive range of motion is, is an investigation in normal length tension relationships. Because again, we talk about this in, in FR, we use it as a, as a drill, as a matter of fact, that if you take something from, if I take my arm like this, there'll be no tension in my bicep. And as I lengthen it out, there will be tension, tension in my bicep. And that's just a normal relationship. And it's the relationship that passive range of motion displays. And within that, you have the force length curve which is the length curve of a sarcomere. And that's part of the active component of range of motion. So now you can tease the active component away from the passive component. So there's, there's these two things, passive properties and active properties that overlap into what we generally just call range of motion. Pause. So most, most people so are here. If I, if I, just to define for the people who are not in our profession, so we can say the active qualities are the ones being influenced by neurological activity. That's right. And then passive components is just the physical, you know. The physical stretching of the tissue. Stretching of stuff, continue. Yes. So most people just look at those as being one thing. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to tease them out and say, well, those give us two indications of, you know, let's say system properties with respect to range of motion. And so <clears throat> when you start to, to qualify that there are these two things, you know, it helps you understand why range of motion might be uh, uh, an important quality that people have. And oftentimes I, <laughs> I, I talk about range of motion as being a base rate. And so when we talk about base rates, base rates are things that have to be there for other things to happen. They're like the, you know, you talk a lot about prerequisites. It's the same thing. We're just coming from two different, two different, uh, two different frameworks there. And so, range of motion is the base rate for movement. And so, now we can say that there is a there is a passive base base rate that we should have, and there's an active base rate that we should have. You know, and we've sort of gone into the to the literature on that stuff and tried to tease those out. And we know now that. Uh, as we learn in chiro school, just nobody taught us this, is that passive is, is bigger than active to a certain extent. And so that means that if we're looking at passive range of motion as being bigger and less active than active range of motion, it should be the first base rate that we look at. 
And so we've sort of gone in, you know, I won't get into the nitty gritty of all that, but that's kind of what we look at in our, in our system as being sort of that first base rate. And we equate that not to a number, as most people will do, we equate that to a system demand because that's really important because there's a lot of things that you have to then, you know, uh, qualify for yourself in terms of the demand of what that passive range of motion should be, you know, and that's, that's the person that's kind of sitting in front of you uh, that, that you're looking at and what activities they do and what demands do they have and how stressed out are they? Or so in so other words, so just to, just, I want to jump in again. So in other words, if someone, when someone asks you how much range of motion do you need that's a very common question and yeah we're often accused of creating contortionists for some reason yep. i think only because we work with contortionists and dancers and gymnasts that people think that that's always our goal but we've said from the beginning that you only need as much range of motion as your system demands you need plus Correct. a buffer right so what he's what you were saying just to rephrase is that you know, we're not looking for 120 degrees because that's normal. We're looking for 120 degrees because that's what you use for your body. And we're defining normal as being what it is that you want to do with your body. Because we've said before, you can define joints as normal by taking the average of 100 humans and say ankle range of motion in, in these 100 humans was this. But what you're doing is taking the shitty average of probably a lot of shitty ankles, right? That's right. You can't yep. tell me that the ankle range of motion is normal at this, it's abnormal at that, because if you give me an Olympic lifter, I got to make that ankle abnormal just to function normally in the context right. of lifting. So that's right. Yep. So so that 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 gets us into those two those two terms, which is you know what is the prerequisite for the demand, or what is the base rate for the demand, and the passive range of motion has to be that plus a buffer, as you said, just okay. because, you know, we'll get into that in a second, why we need that buffer. Okay. And then we look at an active range of motion, which is how much, so if, if you can be lengthened to a position, therefore you, you've defined what, what we would say would be normal length tension properties for that prerequisite or that base rate, then we want to look at, can you move yourself into that base rate as a foundational capacity that you should be able to have? And that allows us to then define an active range of motion, which is then, you know, can you control your movement into what your demand is? <clears throat> and we come up with a ratio. Uh, a lot of people, you know, sort of question our ratio, but our ratio is based on uh, some evidence. And, and so we try to look for a one-to-one -one ratio of passive to active just means that you can be moved and you can move yourself. Yeah, the that's, goal, that's, you should try to control the ranges that you have right of course and and yes. the goal should be to control all of them but we understand that the passive range will always exceed the active range that's right uh, so you know not to get into the nitty-gritty of fra but what we're saying is that because the law of specificity states that strength attained at one angle can only be utilized plus or minus approximately 20 degrees from that spot what we say is that you you know we can expect to control up to 85 percent of a passive range of motion that doesn't mean we don't want more and it doesn't mean sometimes you only get 80 percent of it but the goal is control as much range of motion as you have exactly okay so now we're gonna and hopefully that's clear for everybody but now we're gonna try to 
try to make it a little bit more, hopefully not more difficult, but maybe a little bit more, a little bit more about how we then view things a little bit differently with respect to range of motion. <clears throat> and so, well, I guess I should, I should stop and say then, you know, with respect to injury then, because you asked me, is range of motion, and is, is it a good outcome for injury? Mm -hmm. Well, it is when you take these things into consideration. It was a bad question, because what I, what, what I was getting at was, <laughs> generally, if you look at the research, if someone is more, okay, you know the old, the old saying, um, that which does not bend breaks? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that was the, the predominant thing that was, that was you know, that, that's what sports medicine was focusing on for injury prevention, right? Make people yep. more long. and So what I was saying is, does passive range of motion in and of itself equate to a reduction in injury rates? Or is it a smart idea for, let's say, a manual a therapist, a, a massage therapist to say, oh, your shoulder hurts? let me check the range of motion. And then when the range of motion passively gets better, you're going to feel better. Does that have relevance? In no, That's no. Okay. Yes. And then, and then to take that a step further is, is if someone comes in with shoulder pain and they check the range of motion and now the pain is gone, but the range of motion didn't change, that is also not good, which is yeah. why range of motion in that, and that's what I was just gonna say, okay. you know, when, when we can tease it out as we just teased it, you know, range of motion then starts to make a little bit more sense. And then you could see two things. You can see that how inherently poor it's used in research as an outcome measure, mm -hmm. but then how valuable it potentially is as an outcome measure when you understand it more. Okay. Uh, because if, if I'm looking at someone as, a, as an individual system and they don't have range of motion to meet their demand from either of those two base rates, well, then, you know, bells have to be going off and saying, well, you know, there's, there's a problem that's mm -hmm. here. And, and we don't know that that problem is going to be injury per se, mm -hmm. uh, but we know that that system system behavior is not meeting system demand and that that is that is a problem but to take that a step further to try to tease this out a little bit more and i know we've had a few discussions on this one of the concepts that i th i think is a valuable concept that that we've introduced both in well we introduced it in fr first uh but we we talked about it at the summit and and i and i i want to say that it went over a lot of people's heads just because i don't know that we made it important enough Mm. was that movement doesn't happen in ranges of motion per se, right? right? Movement happens in what we've termed movement zones. And so this gets us into a, a, a discussion about what those movement zones are and what they're made up of and how that becomes important as a outcome for potential injury reduction, which you're not going to find. Nobody's going to be able to go in the literature and find this because this is something that we've rationalized you know reading the stuff that we're reading that is non-manual therapy or non-strength and conditioning research and so let's talk about that for a second so what we've said up to this point is we've said you know let's take the shoulder for example we've said that the shoulder is made up of six ranges of motion you know flexion extension a b a d i r e r and we've understood them from a very basic range of motion concept and we've understood them as being uh six differentiated movements 
And what we've said is that that's not really the case, that to be quite honest, you can't really define flexion per se, other than we know that that's movement up here. But, you know, there's a whole variety of angles of what we could consider flexion. Mm -hmm. And so we've considered those varieties of angles of flexion as being the flexion movement zone. And the flexion movement zone will bleed into the abduction movement zone and the horizontal abduction movement zone and the extension movement zone. So it gets really, really hard to try to define where flexion ends and where extension begins or abduction begins, so on and so forth, which I think is, I think it's okay that that's a difficult uh, definition because that's how movement occurs. Movement doesn't occur in this, these linear, what we've termed as linear ranges of motion. They occur in what we've termed as a movement zone. And so if we try to take that a bit further in the research, you know, they've taken, again, the shoulder is the easiest uh, thing to, to use as an example, but we've then said, well, ranges of motion are degrees of freedom. So therefore, because the shoulder has six ranges of motion, it must have six degrees of freedom. And so we've done a little digging on that, and that doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so if we have, if we've defined that there can be these different angles of flexion and these different angles of extension and, and all these other movements of the shoulder, then there can't just be one degree of freedom in each direction either. <laughs> and so if you kind of, if you kind of try to tease this out and you say, okay, well, what is a degree of freedom? You know, a degree of freedom, and I, I, I won't do this justice because I didn't, you know, I don't remember the word for word definition, but I've, I've looked this up. And so from a, from a philosophical perspective, a degree of freedom, we have to consider the word freedom. And the freedom part comes from, or if you kind of take that, that means the ability to move freely without constraint. That's, mm -hmm. that's how we can sort of define freedom from a, you know, a philosophical, like, you know, if you want to get into free will, which we won't get into, but, um, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of what, we'll, tackle kind of that. How, we'll put it in a package, send it back to Sam Harris and tell him we figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you know, we can, we can kind of say, well, that, that makes some, that makes a lot of sense when you consider a degree of freedom and range of motion, the ability to move freely within, without constraint. If you then look at sort of a definition of uh, what a degree of freedom might be from like a mechanical perspective, it's just a, it's, it's essentially a variable that a system can move into that allows for a, uh, the ability to have freedom of motion. So, you know, if you kind of take those definitions and you go, okay, well, that means then that range of motion can't just be one, one thing in each direction. If I want to have the freedom to move into flexion in a variety of different directions, which we've termed a movement zone, it's actually made up of, I don't know, thousands, millions, billions of Dude, individual it, degrees of freedom. Let me give you this example. I want you to take this imaginary baseball. I'm handing it to you now. Play with me. Grab it. Thank you. Now, if you throw me the baseball, go ahead, Mike, throw me the baseball. So now I'm walking. Now when I go to catch a baseball, nobody goes like this and catches the baseball. Exactly. Right? 
you're going to be in a wherever the baseball lands you're going to be in a in a in a representation of shoulder flexion but shoulder flexion isn't a thing it's an opportunity to to move into a a, a zone as we have termed it or of potential so flexion is a, is i almost fell right off my chair could you imagine how much how that would have bumped up our viewership <laughs> if i fell off my chair smash my face against the fucking thing and then just put it out and you're like great <laughs> and you were concussed and then you stand <laughs> was, up yeah. and pretend that you can see over my desk because you don't understand the the two dimensions of, of zoom anyway so it's it's an opportunity to move into a zone it's 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 like we say it's a system so there's there's variability is what we're getting yes. at yes okay yeah so, so so this gets this gets a, a little bit a little bit more in depth i think so i think i think that helps us understand that range of motion and flexion which we call the flexion degree of freedom is not actually one degree of freedom it's 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 options of movement in the flexion and that's how we can define a degree of freedom it's it's the ability to have the ability to move there without constraint okay and so one of the one i i, I was super excited when i found this out i remember telling you but i was listening to to dan dennett who i don't I, hey, listen, I don't profess to understand that motherfucker at all, but... It's, it's, it's so, so deep, man. It's so hard, but... Yeah. I, I'm hoping that, you know, growing this beard will help me understand him a little bit, but um, something really resonated with me. And I was, I was on a plane, actually, to teach something when I was listening to this podcast uh, with Dan Dennett. And Dan Dennett, you know, he comes at things from a cognitive perspective. He comes at things from a free will and a you know, philosophy of consciousness. And he was talking about degrees of freedom from a conscious perspective. And he said, think about a degree of freedom as solely an opportunity for the system to control itself. And I was like, holy shit, that makes a lot of sense. And that again, that makes a lot have, of have, sense. You might have cut out. Say that again, because I want to I want to tease that out. So a degree yeah, of so, ability. So Dan, Dennett, Dan Dennett said, think of a degree of freedom as simply the system's opportunity to control itself. It's just an opportunity for control. That's what we've been talking about forever is yeah. just, we want the system to learn about itself. We want the system to be able to control itself and as in any way that it should be able to learn and control about itself. So that's how we can think about a degree of freedom. And so then you come back to, you know, uh, biomechanics or mechanics and you go, well, this, 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 definition of degrees of freedom that that we're rationalizing range of motion on it's just not jiving because that means if flexion was simply one degree of freedom then the system would only have that opportunity to control itself and we know just by what we we're just talking about that that's inherently wrong it, it can't be that way so if we look at the shoulder which is the easiest again to demonstrate this the shoulder is gosh i don't even know like it if you define a degree of freedom as just a, 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 an ability to move, there's billions of degrees yeah, of freedom in the here. shoulder. Yep. It, yeah, I mean, and I, and I get it, like the, the research in biomechanics has to tried to take that really, really complex thing and break it down very, very simply, but in our, and so it's to say it's just one degree of freedom, but in our simple understanding, we've lost the, we've lost the understanding of why that is the way it is. And I think, 
you know, when, when we look at range of motion, we don't look at it in traditional things of this is what range of motion is. We look at it in degrees of freedom. You know, like if you look at our cars, for example, cars are the expression of degrees of freedom that every joint should have. And so we can tease out those degrees of freedom that people are not exploring. And so now if we look at the, the definition of what that is, well, if you're not exploring that, if you're not exploring, like workspace, mm-hmm. workspace is just the opportunity to express degrees of freedom, right? And so if we look at it and that workspace is small, uh, or there's certain parts of that workspace that the, uh, somebody's not moving into, well, let's take it back to the definition. That's not range of motion per se. That's, holy shit, you've lost the opportunity to learn about yourself, to control yourself in this part of your workspace that I otherwise think you should have going back to what your system demand is, right? Getting back to your, remember at the beginning of this, I was going to read you some of your, some quotes here. And one well, I, I want to keep going on that because there's a little yeah. bit more that I want to tease. No, out. no, but I, I just want to talk about this workspace one. So we def, you define workspace as the maximum amount of strict articular motion that is able to be expressed. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and so, I, think that, I think that makes a lot, hopefully that makes a lot more sense now to people when we, when we put it under the guise of, well, what does that actually mean? That actually means that you're made up of movement zones, not ranges of motion. And these movement zones are made up of fundamental things that we call degrees of freedom. And those degrees of freedom are how you learn to explore space. Okay, let me, let me bring you back for the people who are not in our profession for this talk. And, and I, I wanna try to explain. So I keep forgetting well, that this is a podcast and not just- No, 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 it's, it's okay. Let's go, you can go deep as you want. So what we're saying then is, so for people listening, um, wow, we're saying a lot. But <laughs> one of the things that we say a lot when we lecture is you can't move where you can't move. Yes. Okay, so what we're saying is, is that, you know, a range of motion that you have, let's say you have this much flexion that's passive. So if I take your arm and I go like this, you have a lot of range of motion, right? But then I say, I want you to lift your own arm. And you lift your own arm and you can lift your arm to here, right? Or an easier way to understand this for people, let's say a martial artist in the, in the, in the audience, if I check how much abduction you have with your leg passively. I grab your leg and I check it. So I've established some kind of passive range. And then I say, okay, lift your leg and you can only lift it to 90 degrees. So I can passively put you into 180 degrees of a split. But if I ask you to lift your leg to throw a kick, you can only throw or lift to 90. Okay, conceivably. Let's just go with that to make it easy. So there's 90 degrees of range of motion there that is available to you passively, but unavailable to you actively. And people have, they, 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 I, you know, we always say that active range is important. Active range is important. And they're, well, why do you think active range is important? What passive range is important? You know, you should be flexible. You go to yoga, you get all bendable in certain ways. That's going to prevent injury. We know that not to be true. But why is that the case? The case is because we just said that the range of motion is not going to help the outcome measure as to whether or not you like in, in the, in the way that not the way you define range of motion, let's just think of range of motion is, uh-huh. you know, how much I can move you. 
that outcome measure is not going to tell you if the person is safe in the range, whether they can execute in the range, whether they can move in the range, whether they understand. It's just saying that when I take your body, I can contort you under external force into a certain position. Now, you look at the research, you go, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't jive. Range, people who have extraordinary ranges of motion passively don't seem to come into us with less pain. If anything, they come Yeah, into, they, they still get hurt. Yeah, they still get hurt. So, okay, so what is in the literature, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the execution of force, or i.e. strength, does directly have an ability to ward off injury. So if you were to say, like, what should I do to be less prone to injury? Would you agree that from a bird's eye view of the literature, saying the words get stronger would, would, would be justified? 100%. 100%. Because if you break down what get stronger means, that is just the ability to display force. Okay. So now, if you can't move where you can't move, Correct me if I'm wrong. That means the amount of experience you have moving where you can't move amounts to zero. Yes. Okay. So if someone has zero experience with a particular movement, they're probably less coordinated. Yes. Would you agree that a less coordinated person is more likely to get injured than a coordinated person is when executing the motion that they are either coordinated or uncoordinated in doing? So yes. Okay, so if you can't move where you can't move, that means you can't execute force out there, so which means you can't defend yourself against injury because we just said that to defend against forces, you have to be able to execute forces, but you can't move where you can't move, so you can't execute force where you can't move. And if you can't move where you can't move, you have no experience moving where you can't move, which means your nervous system doesn't know how to deal with variables because it has no practice in that range of motion. Yes. Okay, so if you're in the audience and you're wondering why we say active range of motion is so important, don't go to the research and go active versus passive ratio. I want to see another author who used that term. No, think about it logically. If you can't yes. move somewhere, but you can passively move there, that means when you're moved there, if something goes wrong, you have no recourse. You have no way out. It, it, it's like a foam rolling thing. If you squat and you can only squat to 90 or less, and someone goes, just beat the shit out of your hamstrings on a foam roller for 20 minutes. And now all of a sudden you can get down to full depth. Well, that's awesome. But if you don't have any experience down there, if something goes wrong down there, then you can't control what went wrong. And, and if you can't control a range of motion, that motion is likely to become injured. Says science, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't yeah. say it in a paper, but if you look at science... That's what it says, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was going to tease that out a little bit more, but you, right. you, you, you did it. You did it well there. So all, all of what, what we just said there was, you know, if we, if we look at, again, there's, there's a ton of different definition of, of degrees of freedom, and maybe at some point we'll lecture on this. But uh, you know, we, we kind of looked at it from a purely mechanical perspective like a mechanical systems perspective. We looked at what Dan Dennett says about it. Um, if you look at it from a, from a, uh, I know both of us have read a bit of Stuart Kaufman stuff. So Stuart Kaufman is a complexity scientist. And he says <clears throat> that a degree of freedom is an opportunity to do work. Brilliant, yeah. So now we, we put that together 
And we say, you know, if we kind of put all this together and say a degree of freedom is just a variable that we should have, a degree of freedom is an opportunity to control that variable, and a degree of freedom is an opportunity to do work in a particular area that you didn't otherwise do work, that, that starts to rationalize what you just said. So what is, what is the opportunity? It's the ability to use energy, dissipate energy, and express force. Because really, force is just energy, right? It's just an it's just an energy conversion from, you know, kinetic to or sorry, potential to kinetic or vice versa, whatever the case is. So the ability to do work just means that you're having the ability to display force. And if you can't do work in a particular degree of freedom, therefore in a particular range of motion then you're not going to be able to display that force effectively, right? right? I mean, you could tease this. I know both of us have, have, have studied a lot about, uh, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, not that we have to go there, but that's really what the second law of thermodynamics is, right? It's just how we use force to change ourselves positively. How do we change ourselves positively? We either lay down new tissue there, we change our ability to display strength. We change our ability to display power. We change our ability to display whatever velocity in these ranges of motion that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do so, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where, again, circling back, that's where that range of motion concept breaks down because I don't think that anybody has teased it out like we've teased it out mm -hmm. and then really said, well, the literature might, may or may not show you why it is an important thing for, for injury prevention. Uh, but when you start to tease it out and you start to tease it out from these, these lenses, it makes a whole lot of logical sense why it would be an important variable both uh, for injury prevention and the ability to you know, improve your overall physical being. Okay. Let's go, let's, let's take it a different area because when we're talking about flexion as being an opportunity, we're talking about zones of freedom. Uh, this, the system, when we look at a, at a, at a shoulder, we don't, you know, we make the shoulder function like a shoulder. We give it degrees of freedom. We give it capsular space so that it increases the workspace so that the shoulder can control a lot of degrees of freedom with the idea that then when you go to learn tasks like throwing a baseball, if you have the degrees of freedom, if you have the knowledge of your degrees of freedom, if the tissue has been laid down, if the afferents is coming from that tissue that's been laid down, the communication between the tissue and the brain is higher, ergo the learning curve goes, goes down. Yes, you would say. As a matter yeah. of fact, getting back to one of these quotes, it's funny you, I said that because one of the ones that, <laughs> that you had said is where is it here it is uh the process of skill acquisition sorry process of skill acquisition begins with the ability to express full physical capacity at each joint involved in the skill to be acquired yeah the process of skill acquisition begins with the ability to express full physical capacity at each joint involved in the skill to be acquired you yeah. have something more to say on that uh, you know, I, I hope that is pretty self-explanatory just kind of from what, from what we were just talking about, but you know, most people don't 
and again, this just gets us back into, you know, prerequisites and base rates and so on and so forth. Most people try to apply skill uh, in ill-conceived ways. And I think the first, you know, really what that quote is talking about is that if, if, if we, let's, let's even go back. So what is skill acquisition? Skill acquisition, I, in that quote, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, you're teaching someone to do a new thing or that someone is learning how to, you know, do jujitsu or how to, you know, do a spinning back kick or something like that. <clears throat> I think what I really meant by that is that, you know, even in a, you know, a traditional training perspective or, you know, a traditional treatment perspective, what, what we should be thinking about is the process of skill acquisition. Because, you know, if, if people are in a, if people are coming to you because you're a therapist in, in the clinic, you know, they're coming to you not because, you know, they are coming to you because they have an injury, you know, they may have some discomfort, they may have, you know, some, some structural something, but what they're really coming to you for is I can't do what I used to be able to do at one point in time. So the, the process of treatment and then rehab is skill acquisition. <clears throat> it is giving somebody back something that they've inherently lost as a result of, you know, I blew my hamstring or, you know, my ankle feels tight or stiff or whatever. When, when you consider training, <clears throat> training is skill acquisition as well. So you know, you could take it from, uh, you know, one particular exercise, like I want to get better at this exercise as being a skill, or you could say, okay, we're training in a more specific way to make you better at your chosen skill outside of the gym, whatever that sport that might be or whatever. So skill acquisition there is sort of a generic thing to say that really what we do with people is we there, there has to be some learning process involved <clears throat> there, you know, and, and if people don't learn, then I don't think that you've done anything. And, and so really what is learning? Learning is you have to change a behavior of something, <clears throat> right? Mm -hmm. So that's why getting back to what we were saying, and I'm going to try to circle back to this whole conversation because it might be a lot for a lot of people. This is where we're talking. Like, I, I don't think that, we use the right outcome measures a lot of time when we, when we deal with people, we're using the wrong things. What, what we should really be using is not necessarily pain in the VAS, but you know, is your behavior different when I, when I, you know, as I go through my plan of management or as I go through my training cycle, are you actually learning things that I want you to learn? And, and that learning process is what, you know, inherently can be skill acquisition. And so how do people learn? <clears throat> well, people learn by the ability for us to teach them about themselves, right? Because as you said, uh, and as, as we've mentioned before, you know, your, your brain is sheltered in a, in a very deep, dark cave, right? And it doesn't know anything about the periphery other than by the feedback it gets from the periphery. Well, the feedback is how the brain learns about itself, which, which brings up an interesting point. You know, these people that are like, oh, well, I only do brain training. You know, I'm really into like neuroplasticity and I want to I wanna change the brain. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that unless you teach I'm, the periphery. I'm into that. 
just, you can't I, do that unless you do it. Unless you unless you learn about the periphery. So when I say building physical capacity as being the first component of skill acquisition, you know that gets us back to that discussion of degrees of freedom, and it gets us back to that discussion about range of motion. Because when we when we teach people, or when we want people to change their behavior, we have to push them into degrees of freedom that they don't know about. Mm. Mm. And that's how you learn about yourself, mm -hmm. right? If you push people into degrees of freedom that they don't know about, that's what gives them the experience. That's what creates those, you know, what we call those loops of, of afferents back to the CNS. That's, that's how the brain goes, oh shit, now I know what you're asking me to do. And so, when that quote came out, you know, I, that's essentially what I was talking about. I was actually talking about it from a, from a therapeutic perspective, because uh, I remember exactly when I tweeted that out. I was talking about it from a therapeutic perspective, and I tweeted it out because I had a patient who had spent months and months in, in, with another clinician with no change. Mm. And, the, and the reason was is because there was, no, there was no concerted effort to actually change the behavior. And, and that's, that's what skill acquisition is. And, you know, if you take that even a step further, I know we, we spent a lot of time with baseball teams. You know, we can use that example that we, we saw in January hmm. with, with the, the actual skill coach. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at a skill coach, a skill coach's requirement is just give me the human that has all of the stuff necessary for me to layer on the learning process. Yeah, I remember that conversation because it was – there was a bunch of uh, strength and conditioning people in, in, in the area and there was a skill coach and there was us and the skill coach was just like, yes, what they're saying, give me someone who is moldable. That's what I yes. need you to do. And it's, it's weird because the strength and conditioning coach, again, you're ill-defined. What are you, what are you trying to do here? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I don't work on a skill. You're a skill coach, but you need to tell me I need him to be able or her to be able to do this. This is what I need you to give me so that as a skill coach, I can, I can make it happen yes. or I can train it to happen. Right? Yeah. So. Oh, you pause one second. We, when I said in that quote, building, when I said in that quote, building physical capacity, what I was actually talking about, was range of motion yeah, yeah, yeah you know but but range of motion how we just defined it over the last 40 minutes yeah because yeah. you know that 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 the reason as i said that the patient that prompted that that tweet was you know somebody who spent months and months in therapy and still had no idea about how to move themselves well how are you going to teach that person or how is that person going to learn eventually how to use that shoulder again you you know, you, you, have to, you have to push degrees of freedom as opportunities to learn. Just like Dan Dennis said, it's an opportunity for that person to control themselves. And that takes work. You know, that's not something that, you know, happens overnight. But, but, but if you spend the, the time doing that, that's, that's how you build skill. Because skill is just learning. I think another good way to for people who might, who we might've gone deep is another way that we explained it. I think we did that at that, the event where we were speaking to those MLB teams is we said, look, if you, if I give you two, you know, collegiate pitchers, right. You have two pitchers, both, you know, right-handed, same height, same weight. Uh, they've been playing for the same amount of time. They conceivably, you know what I mean? They're, they're two equal athletes, right. 
and you're a baseball coach, okay? And I'm gonna task you, I'm gonna say, you get to choose one of these athletes and both of them have, what's a good, what's a good fastball? You're a baseball guy, what's a good fastball? Well, let's just say that they're like 17 and they're throwing 90 plus. Okay. So, 17, 18. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so she's, uh, she, they're both, they're both, she's throwing 90, he's throwing 90. She's throwing 90, she's throwing 90. They're both the same, right? Because they have to be same gender, same everything. Okay, so everything's yeah. the same. And your job is to take them from 90 and you got to get them to 92. Okay. But you get to choose which one you work with. And I say to the first one, I say, show me what your shoulder can do. Right. Just, just kind of like make a circle. And the first one kind of goes like this, right? And they go like that. So they're doing that circle. And then you go, okay, well tell me about your history. And they go, well, I had a, a labral tear that I got replaced or repaired. I had a, a rotator cuff injury. You know, there was a Tommy John, a long time, blah, 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 blah. And it might, I have a little bit of pain up here, blah, 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 blah. I had mid-back stiffness. Okay. Then there's the other one. Remember, every, other than here, everything else is the same. They pitch the same speed. Okay. The, same. the other one, I say, show me what, what, what you can do with your shoulder. And they go like this. And then you ask that player, you know, give me your history. And they're like, what history? I feel fine. I've never really injured. So the question boils down to if, if you had to make that one of them better, if you had to increase skill, if you had to increase, who would you choose? And, and of course, you know this, but before you answer, there's only one answer. Yeah, of course there is. Who would you choose, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you would choose the second person because that's how the body learns. There's no other way to, like you said there's no other way for it to learn other than to send feedback up from the meat of the body or visual or auditory cues but it's pretty much what's coming back from the body in terms of afferents or feedback and yep. the clean the better someone's health the if the shoulder's healthier if the, the if it has the prerequisite ranges necessary both active and passive you're going to be able to increase that person's abilities faster says science again of course yeah it's just it's that 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 decision should be a no-brainer for everybody you know um, I mean? but 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 yeah, but, but just piggybacking on that that doesn't mean that 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 first person is screwed Not that just means you have more work to do that's right you know what i'm saying yeah yeah because you have the system has to learn has to listen to itself and it's not going to listen to itself if your tissue is riddled with fibrosis and scarring and restriction and lack of health and joint space is gone. And you know what I mean? It's, it's just not how the system works. I do want to get back to one thing we were talking about before, before I get out of it, because the idea of yoga, um, and I, I just want to touch on this. And before I touch on this, because we we're talking about range of motion, I am in no way and have never in my career said that people shouldn't be doing yoga. I want to get that out right now. If any, yeah, you, you take a lot of heat about that, huh? <laughs> you know what? But having said that, we get we get yogis at every seminar, and I sit there explaining, it, and every time they're like, "Yeah, exactly what I thought." Right? I'm not saying anything counterintuitive to yoga. As a matter of fact, I always tell people, um, "Yeah, more people should do yoga." And but I'm talking about real yoga. I'm not talking about the North American interpretation of yoga which is I want to look like a, you know, a jumping leopard or I want to yep. look like a, a, mm -hmm. squatting, a squatting cheetah with these mm -hmm. preconceived positions. I'm talking about the, the, the mindful practice of yoga and meditation 
And, yeah, definitely. And I'm not being ignorant. It's like I've studied it from Eastern philosophy standpoint, and I'm, I understand it. And I, I, I mean, go study it that way. Read the Bhagavad Gita. That's, we've been talking about books that have influenced us. It's, a, it's an incredible text to read, right? So I'm not downplaying it. But what I am saying, though, is if you're practicing yoga, that's not going to make you necessarily better at football. And here's what I mean. The law of specificity is the law of specificity in human physiology. And what the law of specificity really says is you're only prepared for what you trained for. That's right? right. And if, you know, once again, I'm not insulting it, but if you're in, I always say this, if you're doing warrior two or whatever the hell you're doing, you're doing that pose and you say, oh, the pose is hard. But really the amount of maximum voluntary contraction necessary to hold that pose is is very low right like you're you're dealing with you know 15 percent maximum voluntary contraction 10 percent depending when you get better at it conceivably even less right less less yeah. like when you're i mean people oh it's hard to hold a yoga pose i'm like well i can do that for hours like it, it so you're not using a high percentage of your neural drive in those ranges of motion so what i say is that in addition to that if you want to get better at a sport like football i always say there's a you know, a lineman's running at me. If they zig one way and zag that way, and I, I'm only 160 pounds, right? I have to slow this guy down. If I reach back and grab his jersey, and while doing so, I do a warrior two pose, right? <laughs> that dude's going to rip my fucking arm off and take it with him into the end zone. Because I'm not, I, to slow him down, I have to drive. 100% neurological drive to the tissues in this elongated range of motion just to have a chance of slowing him down without catastrophic failure of my tissues, right? And all we're saying is, is that if all of your, you're only practicing 10% of your max, you're only ready to execute 10% of your max, ergo, it's not enough training. So what we're saying is, is that the perceived benefit of yoga to a lot of people is, I'm going to be able to control my body in a better, in more ways, but that's not true. You're going to be able to control your body doing yoga. Right. And right. that's not bad. It's just not going to help you with the linemen. That's right. That's right. You know what I'm saying? And, and then when we talk about these postures and poses, it's like, if you really understand the human body, which I hope that we've studied it enough, and we, you know, we have this concept of bioflow, you realize that everything is interconnected. So the idea that you can sit in one posture and that that posture somehow makes all of the joints involved healthier, that's just not true because the one posture only stresses your hip joint in a particular way. And if that's you right. keep stressing your hip joint in the exact same way and you never explore or open up other ways to stress your hip joint, then you're going to pile endless amounts of load into the same tissue over and over and over and over and over and tissue cannot endlessly absorb load. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that, is that, can, is that a, will everyone understand that or did I go too deep there? No, no. I think that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly it. I mean, <clears throat> Again, let's let's get it back to how I would look at it. Okay, I, I think that was that was explained beautifully. But if yoga is more often than not some passive postures with a, a very small bit of active motion sprinkled in, 
then you are getting, you know, the first base rate, which would be passive range of motion, but then you're not allowing for any opportunity of system control. Now, people are going to say, but there's different kinds of yoga and these guys, this guy's ignorant and there's, there's movement-based yoga and there's flow-based yoga. I understand. Uh, I understand that there's, there's some yoga that, that takes this into consideration more. And I would arguably say that that makes more sense than the basic postural-based yoga that, that a lot of people do. But again, if you're moving slowly, it's just, it's just not enough, right? It's just not, it's just not enough to control the outside world by doing a, a preconceived slow movements under very low minimal isometric tension and expecting that that's gonna somehow translate into the need for explosive skill acquisition. Um, it doesn't work that way, right? It, no, it, it doesn't work that way, no. no. Well, and, and, and you, know, you could look, look at it as well from, you know, let's just say yoga can be equated to a movement skill. Like, and I, when I say a movement, I don't mean a movement. I mean like a, a, a practice of movement skills. Well, by doing yoga, then you become really good at the practice of those movement skills. But that doesn't inherently make you better at other things. Just like if you are a football lineman, mm -hmm. that makes you really good at the practice of being a football lineman, but that's not going to translate into anything else. So it's just one of those things, you know, people get so caught up and I know you've taken a ton of heat about, you know, well, this guy is just shitting on yoga and so on and so forth. But I, I mean, it, it's all logical, you know, the, the ability to be great at one thing isn't going to inherently transfer to other things. That's just, that's just the law of transferability. Unless what you're getting good at is the expression of yourself which is exactly where I was exactly. going. And you, again, this is, yeah. this is why we're such great friends because you can finish my sentences and I can finish yours because oh. that's it. Yeah. That's it, man. That's it. And, 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 you know, the only way you, and that comes back to that skill acquisition quote, the only way you learn and get better at yourself is to put yourself in, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm using the word position here, but it's probably the wrong word to, to, to challenge yourself to learn more about where you can move and then do work there, yeah. right? And, and a lot of people, you know, we have this all the time. Well, fuck, man, I took FRC and I love it, but, you know, it's too hard for me. Or, you know, how do you guys do this? You know, I, I find it just too much work. Well, then don't fucking learn about yourself. It's just, it's not easy. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it you know, anything worth working for takes work. And so, you know, if, if, if we're saying you want to learn about yourself and you want to become better at the ability to express yourself, well, then you can't learn it from a skill. It should then transfer to a skill, but you can't learn it from a skill. The, 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 the learning comes from, from putting yourself into every, you know, ranges of motion, all the stuff that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. but that's how you do it that's how you learn about yourself and that's how you ultimately change behavior <clears throat> well dr chivers do you want to don't have anything else for me man i'm on a roll now i have i i can i have a lot man i have little you I know what, i had that many i didn't know i had that many quotes let's do some let's do some rapid fire stuff and you don't have to you don't have to go deep you can go as deep as you want but just want to i just want to touch on some topics um I'll just say I'll just say a few words like a ro uh, what do you call the test with the ink blots the Rosha uh, what's it called 
Roshock. What's that test called? Do you remember the ink blot test? I don't remember. What's no. the name of the, uh, the, the person who came with that test? Anyway, so I'll say a few words and you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Glute max inhibition. Oh, God. <laughs> um, banana vomit. Let's just say that. Oh, God. Okay. So you got to give me, you got to give me, okay. So nobody's going to know what you're saying unless you've studied the system. So explain what you're saying. So there's a lecture that you had given. And yes. if I recall yes. it, hold on, let me set it up and then you explain. There's, there's a picture <laughs> of the brain, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And then there's a picture of a banana. There was a, shit, I don't remember. I don't remember the slide. There was a picture of the brain. I think there was a picture of a glute and there was a picture of a banana. If I remember, I don't remember now. No, 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 okay, I think I remember. There was a picture of a brain, a picture of a banana, and you left it up there for a few seconds and you didn't say anything. And then you, you, you went, okay, so what do you guys think? And then you, you told them what they were, everyone was thinking. You said, I'm assuming that a lot of you people in the audience were try, immediately trying to make associations. Oh no, it, it was banana and vomit, forget everything I said. You had the word banana and you had the word vomit. That was, yes. was okay. Yes. And you just left it there and you go, you know, what do you guys think? And everyone in the room pretty much admitted that they were immediately when they looked at that slide, you were, tr- they were trying to associate them. So some people were saying, well, if you eat a lot of bananas, you might vomit. And other people were thinking, well, I don't like bananas. So if you give me a banana, I'm going to, so immediately the association was made. And then on the next slide, you put, I think glute max inhibition, right? Yeah, and then and then I put a, a myriad of physical complaints: low back pain, knee pain, blah 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 blah. Okay, go ahead. And so, yeah, I'll sum this up pretty quick. Uh, but but yeah, so I would say banana vomit, just because you know, if you study any sort of uh, you know neuroscience with respect to cognition or the you know how we process information, uh, our brain is just. Uh, uh, an association making machine. So oftentimes if we, you know, we hear things with, with no context, you know, we, we, we try to make context. And, and I think a lot of the, the stuff like glute max inhibition and some of the myths that we, you know, that we lecture on about just that, just being myths, that they're made from inappropriate context and inappropriate associations just because that's what people want. To, to hear and, and you know it seems to make sense to our you know uh, very non-developed brains uh, at this point in time so so as a result um, you know that's why I put banana vomit because banana vomit is a, you know it's it's talked a lot about in the decision making literature as being you know this thing where people will actually try to make associations between two words that you give them uh, so that's that's where I think that whole glute max inhibition came from. We have no evidence to support any of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at people with back pain and glute activation, it, no association. If you like, there's no. just there, no none about any. Like, I don't I don't even remember where that came from. Right? Like, I don't remember. Dude, I think it was. I gotta. It's been a while, but wasn't it? I think it was you and I that came up with. Didn't we do research on that? I don't even remember. I don't remember. We did research. Remember when we were at, uh, in our residency, we did research on the serratus anterior uh, on, on stupid bosu. <laughs> it's oh, so no, embarrassing. 
yeah, it's so embarrassing now, but but it, yeah, yeah, it was. Like, but, but I also yeah. I also did some research uh, with with Greg on on you know the that hip extension pattern and glute inhibition, uh, and one of your classmates, Paul Bruno, did did some okay. research on that too. There's there's no evidence for any of that. Yeah, and the idea that the psoas is somehow tight, and that's some, again so. People just want to make associations. Well, if it's bad on the back, it's got to be bad on the front. And what's on the front? Well, let's just pick the psoas. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, it's find something opposite. Throw in the word reciprocal inhibition. Bob's your uncle and, and everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is really funny. You know, I know we're now off topic. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how many people in our profession profess to have, you know, understand motor control and, and motor learning and they know how things work yet they still talk about movement and reflexes and reflexive and reflex inhibition and if you say those words i know that you haven't read anything on motor learning or motor control so yeah all right wow that's a lot of topics i suppose <laughs> i suppose we can just we can we can leave it at Give that. Me the next one and that you want more let's go what's the next rapid fire one um we might as well take this until uh 11 o'clock we got 10 minutes oh, we got 10 minutes uh you said here the absence of finding is still a finding yep go ahead that tells you that that's not the problem <laughs> <laughs> all right that one was easy forget that uh every single fiber of a muscle has its own stress strain curve yeah oh man you're opening up you're opening up a big one there now keep it, uh, keep it tight keep it tight yeah, it, I, I think that was actually partly misquoted <clears throat> as well. I, I, I said every, every muscle fiber and every layer of connective tissue has its own stress strain curve. Uh, and this just gets us back to kind of trying to understand things again, you know, to try to understand, but, you know, in that understanding, making things a little bit more challenging. And, and so we've always said that muscle doesn't exist as muscle. There isn't just one muscle. There's not just ab biceps. There's not just a hamstring. It's made up of, of a whole bunch of different things that we call the hamstring. And as a result, each one of those things will have its own behavior. And so we have to consider that, you know, both in assessment, we have to consider that when we say, oh, I'm working on the hamstring, I'm training the hamstring. You're not training the hamstring per se. You're training every little piece of the hamstring that all displays its own behavior. And so you have to take that into consideration. That's big. I was talking with Quint about that uh, the other day on the podcast, which was, yeah, you have to, when you're training, like people think, oh, I'm, I'm doing pecs today. And when you say you're training pecs, what you're saying is I'm training tens of thousands of individual muscles, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're not yeah. training pecs. And the idea that this particular angle of training is going to affect the pec is to not understand what the pec is made of similar to say that one particular direction of stretch is the direction of that brings me to another thing if i say the word piriformis stretch doesn't exist okay so explain why i know why it doesn't exist i can explain it in my what what, what do you mean it doesn't exist if i say that what's the best stretch for the piriformis why doesn't that exist uh, again just because we we can't we can't say that as stretch targets a tissue uh as stretch 
targets a flow of tissue. And so, you know, the backside of the hip might be where the, the leverage point is in terms of where you feel that the most, but it's not the only thing that is coming under some sort of tensile load when you stretch. So we have to think about stretching as being uh, targeted to flows of tissue, uh, which is what the bioflow model talks about, and not to specific muscles per se. Muscle testing. Rubbish. Wow. Wow. Let's talk about it. Okay. So before we get in, so we're not talking about, you know, Luddington's test. Was it Luddington's test? Was the, the bicep? Uh, yeah. You, what a fucking stupid test. I remember learning all of these orthopedic tests and I was like, when? Oh, dude, the amount of time, again, that I spent memorizing all of that shit so that I could display some level of clinical expertise and how quickly I got rid of that when I got into real life is absurd. Yeah, so Lightington's was like, if someone <laughs> ruptured their bicep from the distal tendon, you get them to put their arms like this. And then if you go like this, you'll see that the, the fucking bicep is now a, a tennis ball in the front of the deltoid. I'm like, you couldn't have fucking told that when they were just standing there normally. You needed to put a name on it, you asshole. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, so let's talk about not, not like I ruptured a muscle, muscle test. Oh my God, it's weak. I'm talking about this is for your supraspinatus. Oh, you tested weak. Oh, now you test strong type stuff. Yeah. Again, I, I, I think, I think, well, that just goes against, you know, anything that, that is a cursory understanding of neurophysiology. Um, you know, I haven't, I, I must admit, I haven't, I haven't read anything, any new literature on muscle testing in years just because it's just, it's just not on my radar anymore, but, um, it just goes against everything. It, it, it goes against how the central nervous system actually does stuff. It doesn't do stuff in individual muscles. Our cortex isn't wired like that. Our outputs are not wired like that. And when I say wired again, that's just an analogy. It's just not how we do anything. So to try to delineate a weakness to a particular tissue, uh, again, I think just it just it just doesn't it doesn't pass the bullshit test. It's wrong on a lot of levels. Not the least of which is the fact that the brain doesn't see itself as labeled individual muscles. No, these names, no. like the everyone has to understand that these muscles that we bicep, tricep, these are just groupings. This is a name of you know, thousands of, of arguably individual muscles that are wrapped in slightly thicker endomesial, uh, epimesial layers. And then we say, oh, that's this muscle. But that's just because naming, you know, trillions of muscles in the body, if you want to give every muscle cell its own name, is, is, is a little bit much and, and probably hard to get across in a multiple choice test. But really, the idea that, you know, I'm muscle testing the supraspinatus is to say that I don't really know how muscles are activated because there is no way to isolate the supraspinatus because really in the grand scheme of things there's no such thing as the supraspinatus the supraspinatus yeah, totally. yeah. yeah it's really just proteins that grow in connective tissue so that it can alter the the, the tension relationship in the connective tissue That's right, right. That's, which is what a muscle is we always say this muscles are just you know proteins laid down they're just the actuators of movement they're not the yeah, they don't do anything in and of themselves, right? Yep. They're they're uh, they're 
they're engines of work. That's it. Mm, mm. Which is why you can't focus on them necessarily. And we can't talk about, you know, this muscle is activated. This muscle's inhibited. It's the other thing. It's like your, you know, piriformis is inhibited, which is facilitating your quadratus femoris, which is inhibiting your fibularis group. Like just the words that we're using, the fact that you're saying that a muscle is inherently 100% facilitated or inhibited is once again to not understand the principle as to how muscles contract, right? The all or none principle of muscle contraction is not denoted for an entire muscle. It's for particular motor units within a muscle, right? Yeah, and there's, there's people that have built, built continuing education on that, man. It's yeah. unfortunate because that just shows me that you haven't, you haven't opened up a, a physiology book, you haven't opened up a, a book on the nervous system, and you haven't studied motor control at all. Mm, which, which are pretty important for our topics, you think? Yeah, quite. <laughs> All right, man, we can go on forever. I think we should end it there and just understand. We should probably do another one of these, though. We'll, we'll, do, lots like, of still we'll do like, I'm going to be alive for a while longer, I'm assuming, right? So yeah, we and we probably, don't have anything else to do. Yeah, well, right. we're opening it up now. You said you practiced, uh, you went back to practice recently, right? Yeah, I was back yesterday. It was weird, man. As I, as I, talked, I talked to you yesterday, it's... Uh, you know, now you have this, there's this, yeah, there's this overarching thing that, you know, everybody knows is there and it's, it's, it's kind of just, it's just yeah. weird now. Masks and, yeah. masks and gloves and disinfectant. And I get it. Don't get me wrong. I get it. I, I totally understand that it's a, it's a necessary requirement. It just, la- it just puts on this layer of difficulty for people. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? You know, and everybody, you know, everybody has this, like, it just feels like you're walking around on eggshells a little bit mm. because, of, because of it. Absolutely. It's a bit weird. Yeah. My brother. All uh, right, man. Love talking to you. Uh, yep. I, I will put all your stuff. You should be following Dr. Chivers if you want more of these fabulous misquotes that people put up. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was really informative, bro. We're going to talk again soon. Uh, Love you. Uh, Everyone listening, take it easy. Bye.